anybody there? <laughs> yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. Hey, Hi. Rachel, how are you? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Me too. I think this is going to be such a wonderful conversation. I just yeah. want to forewarn you real quick and also apologize. I'm a little bit stuffy this morning. Okay. Uh, I may have, you know, caught a, a bug or something from my son. Uh, so I apologize yeah. if I start sounding a little bit like a, like a frog or something. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope I won't sound that way either. It's, uh, it's kind of allergy season. So every once in a while, I have to deal with that too. Yeah, it's it's the perfect combination. But uh, if you don't yeah. mind, let's just dive right in. And sure. if I may ask, um, where are you from? Where are you calling from? <laughs> well, I yes, I'm just outside of Mankato, Minnesota, which is in southern Minnesota, about an hour and a half drive from Minneapolis, St. Paul. Mm, okay. Has that always been home? Pretty much. I grew up in southern Minnesota, so my hometown is about 30 miles away. So I have always lived here. Mm, okay, wonderful. So when did you start writing? When did you start approaching writing as something that was fulfilling to you or that you felt was going to be a, a big part of your life? Yeah, I mean, I always loved to write. I'm sure so many people that you talk to say that, <laughs> you know, that they grew yeah. up enjoying writing. And I really did. I, I loved writing. I loved reading. Um, so I knew that I always wanted to do something with writing as far as a career. And so I was pretty young. I was probably in junior high school when I thought, well, I really like writing. And I, I also really liked the news. I mean, I was just kind of a nerdy kid. <laughs> uh, my dad would always bring home newspapers. And so I'd read newspapers. And I grew up at the time where you only had, you know, three network television stations. And so the TV was always on in the house. So the, the news was always on. And I was always just really kind of captivated by those kind of true life dramas. And so I thought, you know, I could probably go into journalism. Then I could combine writing and I could combine this love of current events and the news um, and be able to make a career out of that. So that is what I did. I approached writing as a career. Mm. So uh, that led you to do some work in radio. Is that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I worked at a newspaper, but I uh, there's a, a little radio station in Mankato um, that is run by the university. Mm. And I've always, you know, I've enjoyed TV. I've enjoyed radio. I love to talk. And so I did <laughs> I, for about a, for about three years. I did a weekly show um, at the radio station where I was interviewing writers. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot of takeaways. And that that's why I was kind of excited to talk to you, too, because this is always mm -hmm. an education for me where you find people who are, you know, who have that kind of experience that that um, that you're aspiring to acquire. And yeah. I, I realize, oh, man, this is going to be such a wonderful resource for people just to, to actually mine information from uh, folks that they may be talking to or, or people who are their mentors and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, I I'm curious of when this seed of an idea started for your book that you want to talk about today. Um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's a, it's a big it's a big story, and uh, I'm sure it ties very well with your interest in journalism. But it seems like there's also a personal side of this uh, this book. Definitely. You know, I went into my journalism career thinking that 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 was it. You know, I, I really had no other ideas for writing. It, it's not like I was that person who thought, oh, I, I would always like to write a book someday. I mean, that just wasn't even on my radar. Mm. Um, so mm. I was still working at the newspaper when I came across 
this story that is now my current book, um, I, I was reading the newspaper one day back in 1999. I was reading the Minneapolis Star Tribune and uh, there was an arrest of a woman in St. Paul named Sarah Jane Olson. And it, every, uh, we had come to find out that she had been a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army back in the mid 70s. And so mm -hmm. the SLA was one of those um, quite radical um, protest organizations that grew out of the 60s and the early 70s and they're most famous for kidnapping patricia hurst so if anybody mm -hmm. does know of the sla they probably are familiar with um, patty hurst's role in that so this woman got arrested and when i was reading the news coverage there was a smaller story that ran alongside of it just about the sla in general and the history of it and there was a small picture of a woman named Camilla Hall. And underneath the picture, there was information that said that she had grown up in St. Peter, Minnesota, which was just 10 miles from me. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of her. You know, I had always lived in this area. I worked at the newspaper. I, I was pretty familiar with this region and things that had happened. And I thought, wow, I've never heard of this woman. And here she played this pretty major role in this, um, you know, highly publicized SLA. You know, they were all over the news back in 74 and 75. And I just thought, I would like to know more about her. Like, this sounds like a good story. How does a woman grow up in St. Peter, uh, you know, a, a nice Midwestern girl from a nice Midwestern family and actually become a, a radical and, and, you know, embrace violence as a, as a way toward yeah. revolution. It really fascinated me. Like at some point she had some kind of turning point and that just really started my journey. So it's been 23 years that I've been working oh, on this. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm curious because it seems like this is a project that you would always come back to. Right. So at any point, did you feel like this was never going to be a thing that happened? This book yeah. was never going to exist. No, I mean, I really I, I felt so confident in the story. Like it was a good story. And she was she's such a mysterious character. And I think people like reading about people <laughs> like that, you know, where you just you, you're just trying to figure out what was she thinking? Why did she make the decision decisions she did? So I, I always thought that in some form or fashion, it would be a book. I just didn't know exactly how it was going to get to that point. Mm. So what had to happen in order for you to figure out the shape that it would take? Uh, yeah. When did you feel like that was enough information to assemble into a work? Yeah, right. You know, I started the project thinking, wow, there's not enough information. Um, I had some initial uh, luck uh, just because at the college in St. Peter, it's called Gustavus Adolphus College. Uh, this is where Camilla's father worked. He was a theology professor. He was a pastor mm -hmm. and theology professor. So he had left quite a few documents in the archives. Um, so I was able to draw upon those. Um, but I thought, well, this is still kind of thin. It's kind of sparse. But you know, you just continue to do research and one thing leads to another. Mm. Um, you find people, you know, who can talk and who know things, you find the right people. And so really it, it came to the point where I thought, wow, you know, I started this project thinking there wouldn't be enough to kind of patch together 
her life. But then uh, toward the end, I thought, wow, I I have a lot more than I ever thought I would have. And Mm. so, you know, it was certainly that drafting process. You know, it took a while to to figure out, okay, what kind of shape is this narrative going to take? But yeah, I would say, you know, even a, a couple of years ago, I was pretty confident that it was pretty close to where it needed to be. Do you think that really comes from your identity as sort of the way you see the world or perhaps your training as a journalist that allowed you Mm -hmm. to just have no real fear about this, this whole thing or hesitation more like, hey, I'm going to get this done. (laughs) Sort of like the way journalists usually think, right? Which is like, hey, I got a deadline. I got stuff to do. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it's that journalistic training of what is a good story. You get a sense of readership. You get a sense of what people are interested in. Um, and then I, I I have a history degree too. I have a master's degree in history. So, I mean, I love research. You know, I love just <laughs> digging in. And I feel also pretty confident with that training that, like, there's always information out there. You know, you just have to figure out how to find it. So, I yeah, I felt that I had enough training that way too that I I was able to be confident to know that, okay, at some point I'm going to have enough information here to, to write a book. Yeah. And it's so intriguing too, because if you think about just the small town surprise that happened, right? It it seems like the moment you turn a stone, there might be folks who are against (laughs) you in this process. Do you feel like that was the case at any point during the story that, that you had pushback from the community or from people within it? (laughs) A, a, a little bit, maybe not necessarily the community, although I think that's why the story was never, I think that's why I'd never heard about it. Mm. Because, um, you know, in the 1970s, somebody who was involved in something like this, I mean, to, to be, you know, such a radical and such a known radical, like it was kind of a an embarrassment maybe. Mm. And, and I know that, I know the family, like the extended family, they didn't really want to talk about it. And I think the community too, you know, they didn't want to say, oh, you know, look at this person who, who came from this place and, and wow, you know, they committed crimes and (laughs) they, Mm -hmm. they got involved in this group. So I think that it had always been something that was a little taboo to talk about, but, you know, I, I'd come across some of her friends, you know, during my research and, there were a couple that I could tell were still really hesitant to talk. They just really didn't want to talk about that time. And, you know, if you were involved in radical activities at that time, and I mean, today too, you know, it hasn't really changed, but, but people are watching you, you know, you're, you're, you're being watched, you know, maybe the FBI is kind of onto your tail. Mm -hmm. So people, I think that the people's nature was to just remain really quiet and not want to talk maybe Mm -hmm. for fear of who's listening. Yeah. It's such a fascinating change in generational, uh, I I guess, just speaking specifically about surveillance, right? I I mean, Mm -hmm. can you imagine something escalating to that degree in this day and age? Or do you think that, I mean, it's such a broad question, but uh, it just gets my mind running in terms of how different it used to be for something like that to essentially brew in in sort of unseen places. And yeah. uh, Okay. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think there, I like, I'm seeing more, more than ever, like more parallels today that are popping up. You know, I've been working on this book for a long time. So, you know, there's been different times where I thought, okay, you know, I'm writing about history. I'm writing about something in the past Mm. and people will read it, you know, just to learn about the past, you know, and then I was working on the book really intensely, like getting back into a, a really 
deep revision um, in the summer of 2020, or really in May of 2020, I was just start, starting a sabbatical then from my teaching job. Mm-hmm. And then um, George Floyd was killed, you know, here in Minneapolis. Right. But obviously, oh, goodness, you know, yeah. the, the protests went, you know, all over the world. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe at more than any other point, people can now relate to maybe what Camilla and the others were going through as far as they were just so frustrated. Like they had reached a breaking point. They were so frustrated with the Vietnam War. They were so frustrated with racial inequality, gender inequality, social inequality, that they said, we're not going to take it anymore. And I thought, wow, you know, I think now maybe people today can get that. And then a few months later, we had the January 6th Capitol riot. So, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's parallel. It's certainly on a different, it's on the two sides of the same coin, you know, because Camilla that she was very left-wing and now we have a lot of right-wing insurgency going on, but it still is stemming from that same place of frustration and anger, that idea, like no one's listening to us. We have to, you know, really make our mark and maybe, you know, take up arms to really show people how serious we are. Yeah. And I was reading a little bit about the um, SLA and Mm -hmm. this is the completely new to me. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that concerns me is that I never learned any about any of this, you know, and I've taken history classes. I've been to college and that's one of those things that just like never came up. And I'm like, why? Why is this not something that is is used to have a conversation about what uh, uh, a national terrorist organization looks like, but also its origins? Because that's kind of what struck me is. In of course in Wikipedia and of uh, of course I'm <laughs> not a historian mm-hmm. so I just go to Wikipedia yeah. and it just gives me a, a faint idea of the original uh, reason which is let's bring everybody together how can something so benign yeah just evolve into into this thing that is that is horrific and and brings such sorrow and destruction uh, on yeah. people yeah exactly yeah I, it, it's like you can't. I, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue with their original intent, you know, and they, they issued a lot of communiques and manifestos. I mean, they really wrote a lot. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of their first ones is here's where here's who we are. Here's what we're frustrated with. And here's our end goal. And yeah, I mean, it, it sounds very it does sound very benign. I mean, their whole idea behind the word symbionese symbiosis is like mm-hmm. bringing together two things, you know, to work together. Yeah. Um But yeah, to be able to then say, okay, we're so committed to this that we we're going to have to be violent and uh, to Mm -hmm. to make our to make our our claim on this idea. Yeah. And I'm curious on your end. Do you did you ever feel at any point because obviously you're following uh, an individual who was not the figurehead of a movement or anything. Mm -hmm. But was there any concern at any point as you were writing this that having an individual have their story told humanize that kind of extreme um an extreme organization like that do you think there's ever a peril in that yeah i thought a lot about that because i mean that really was my goal mm. because like one thing that that upset me or that I didn't like is as how Camilla was always portrayed in media accounts. And so, and so she was killed. She and five other SLA members were killed in May 1974, about three months after the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And I think because those six died and Patty Hearst went on to do, to be on the run for like another 
over not over another year, um, people forgot who those six people were who had died. And they the coverage at the time, it's like that coverage at the time was kind of just frozen in amber, you know. Mm. And so Camilla was portrayed as this crazy radical. She was called a militant lesbian. I mean, she was really talked about <laughs> in really, really rather cruel terms, you know, yeah. I mean, overweight and, you know, those kind of things. And I thought, well, that's that's so sad. Like, that's so one sided. Like, that is not that's who yeah. she was in the moment she died. But who was she before that? And I just think it is important to to look at the full person, you know, because something happened somewhere. I mean, for anybody who's made those kind of decisions, what has happened to make them go down that fork in the road? Yeah. And I guess it's part of the the education of, of getting the word out there. You have to mine deep into who the person used to be to to really contrast that transformation to to see who they were but did you feel there was an attachment of of any kind like you started to feel like we gotta make sure that this person is conveyed in the most honest way like you felt a responsibility to do that mm -hmm. at, at a certain point yeah i did you know i i thought about her her parents and i never met them you know they uh they had died before I'd started the project, um, but I've read a lot of things that that they have written or especially what her father had written. He was a very prolific writer and left a lot of things behind. And, you know, they they just by all accounts were just the sweetest couple. I mean, just sweet, just generous, very, very kind people. And so I just think about them, too, you know, to have a fuller picture of their daughter out there and, and not, you know, the, the monster that she was portrayed to be at the very end. Um, you know, I felt like I had some kind of a duty to them as well. Yeah. Has it, has this made you look at your town, your region differently? Um, how, how has exploring this story changed the way that you see your community? Yeah, I, well, definitely, you know, I think like I was talking about earlier, um, communities like to, um, you know, keep kind of the dark sides quiet, <laughs> which <laughs> which makes sense, you know. Um, but it's it, it certainly makes me realize that that maybe every place has a story and maybe stories that aren't so good. And <laughs> I don't know, I guess I'm just such a curious person. Like, I want to know about those stories or let's talk yeah. about those stories. Um, it, it, because, you know, here in the Midwest, I mean, we just really come from that culture of just being very quiet and very stoic and, mm. and we don't want to ruffle any feathers and we yeah. just want to be really nice. <laughs> um, and I think that, that that really can do a a disservice because then you're just like bottling things up and you know that's not healthy for anyone whether an individual or a community right and may i ask i, I totally forgot to ask you this at the beginning mm -hmm. what do you teach or where do you teach oh yeah 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 so i teach creative writing at minnesota state university mankato and my primary focus is creative nonfiction. Oh, great, great. So mm -hmm. it was it was really uh, a great learning experience to pass on to your students, I imagine, to be able to put together this work. Um, oh, yeah, I just it. Yeah, I feel like I can really relate this to a lot of things that I'm talking about um, in class. And, and but I think, oh, well, I don't want to talk about myself all the time, or, you know, my book all the time. <laughs> so I try to mix it up. But but I one thing I do like to relate to my students, 
um, are my struggles. You know, I'm mm. actually teaching a English 101 class right now and we're talking about revision and we're talking about feedback. And, you know, I'm telling them that I, I, as a professional writer, like I, I have to revise, I have to get feedback from other people. And it can be a frustrating process, but it's just something you have to go through. So I think those kind of things um, are useful for my students to hear. Yeah. Do you feel now that you're on the other side of it, there's things that you would have done differently in this project? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't not not that I can think of right now. Um, I think just because it took so long, you know, yeah. that I, I feel like along the entire way I was being very methodical about it. Um, I think there's always you know, once the book is out and in print, you you read through it, and you're like, oh, why did I say it like that? Or well, I yeah. wish I would have added more things, you know, kind of those right. minor things. Like, I think you could be in a constant process of revision, but at some point you just have to say, okay, that that's good enough. You know, I'm done with it. Let's give it out to the readers yeah. and see what they have to say. I imagine you might have days where, sure, the book is published, but every now and then you you might just forget and you realize, oh, I got to go research the project again. And then you realize, oh, wait, it's published. Do, yeah, do you feel like that? <laughs> I, I do, because I think actually what's going to happen now is more people are going to come forward who knew Camilla. So, I mean, that was a pretty big obstacle that I came across was mm -hmm. finding anybody who had known her because her parents were dead. She had three siblings and they all died before her. So by the oh. time she was a senior in high school, she Goodness. was the only child. Yeah, it's a very, very tragic backstory. And they were a family too. They moved around a lot because of her father's job as a pastor. He was kind of always taking different jobs and moving around. So it's like they never even had extended family. I mean, there would be mm -hmm. no cousins who knew her, or no aunts or uncles. She had friends, you know, throughout her life, but they were friends who only knew her for like a very specific moment in time. I mean, there's no lifelong friends or anything like that. So that has definitely been the challenge is just to find anybody still around who who knew her. But I think when the book comes out, more people are going to come forward and say, oh, yeah, you know, I knew her. I went to school with her. Um, in fact, there was just an article, a Q&A with me in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and somebody had contacted the book's editor and said, I used to babysit Camilla. So oh, wow. I, I'll be really excited to keep talking to those people. And I think that talking to them will add so much more to my understanding of her that mm -hmm. at that point, I probably will wish that that those conversations could have made it into the book somehow. For sure. You know, in these days, I, I imagine there might be an easier way to do like an addendum online yes. of some kind, because that yep. is essential stuff, right? I mean, this yeah. is the kind of book that empowers folks to feel like they have something else to add to the conversation of what yeah. happened. And yeah, that's that's just got to be a solution somewhere using the digital space. Oh, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that, um, whether it's, you know, blog posts or just writing some other things up and offering that out there for people to download. Um, yeah, I, I think those stories will be important. Oh, it's amazing. Now, I want to switch gears for just mm -hmm. a moment uh, in terms of getting this book to see the light of day through the publishing process. Yeah. How difficult was this uh, of a sale to an editor, an agent, or did you already have relationships that allowed you to have a conversation about this book? Yeah, I, I did have a relationship with an editor. I have a memoir that came out about 
nine years ago or over nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was through the University of Minnesota Press. And so I had a great relationship with my editor there. And so he knew this whole time that I was working on this project. Um, mm-hmm. But it was kind of funny because um, it was in the summer of 2020. And so I, I emailed him and I think I emailed him maybe the, the first 50 pages or something. And I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back. And I thought, well, OK, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine, because, you know, I, I think what writers are always kind of hoping to there's maybe always something in the back of their mind. They're like, well, maybe this has like bigger potential. Maybe it can go beyond, you know, a regional press. Maybe mm. it maybe somebody, you know, would take it. So I. So I thought, well, I will query agents because on the off chance that maybe an agent says, "Okay, yeah, I think this is something I could sell to a bigger publisher. So I did that. Um, I did that whole querying process through agents. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I got some good bites um, back. But ultimately, the general consensus was, oh, we're we're not we don't really know how to sell this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it all came back to marketing. Well, then I got back in touch with my editor at the U of M press after a a long kind of time that we Mm -hmm. weren't in touch and finally got a hold of him. And at that point he's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he apologized and it was COVID. Right. And so, you know, he had had some issues going on through COVID um, which kind of explained his absence. Um, But once I got back in touch with him, I mean, he was like, oh, no, no doubt. Yeah, we'll, we'll take this. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Because yeah. it's nice to see that that a press like that is willing to take the risk of something that doesn't fit neatly into some kind of quadrant or some yeah. kind of idea of what a marketable piece of storytelling is. But um, do you feel like there's any advice to share f- for younger writers who are going mm-hmm. through that process if they don't have something that is immediately recognizable as a marketable story. I mean, what do we make of that as yeah. as people who yeah. are going into uh, into the publishing field with these kinds I, of stories? Yeah, I love small presses. I love small presses so much um, because they are doing that work that is just, that's not cliched, you know? And that, I mean, that's not to say big publishers are putting out cliched things, but big publishers, they do want the the things that have already been working. And I Mm -hmm. did have the chance to talk to an agent um, one-on-one who was interested in this story. And, you know, but she's like, oh, that's kind of a hard sell. She's like, if you have a World War II story, yeah, we can sell that. (laughs) And I thought, wow, you know, there are just these categories out there yet that they're looking for. But the small presses are so great because I have really found that the editors are so responsive. Like I had queried another university press and the woman who wrote back to me, she gave me, I don't know how much she might've just read the book proposal, but she wrote back this really careful, thoughtful feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was another editor that I'd worked with um, on, with my memoir just informally. I mean, it's the press. Yeah. I didn't have a contract or anything, but she, she believed in it. And she's like, okay, I really like this. I will work with you to help get it in shape to see if we can pitch it. So I think that those small presses, university presses, even if, you know, they're not giving you a contract, I, I have found those editors, if you're going to query them, that they are very responsive and helpful. Oh, that's amazing. Wonderful to hear as well. I I, want to ask you about your memoir just before, Mm -hmm. you know, I got a couple more questions. I don't want to keep you too long, but um, how did this begin for you? The memoir, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing that you had 
enough there to, yeah. to create something for for folks? Yeah. So the memoir started, I was taking a graduate class in creative nonfiction. This was part of my history program because I had to take a couple of classes outside of the history field. And I was working at the newspaper and I thought, well, I'll take this creative nonfiction class because it will help me be a better writer for my newspaper job. Hmm. And I wrote this essay about um, a gravestone that I had remembered when I was really small. So my dad was a grave digger. So I spent oh. a lot of time in cemeteries. Goodness. I wrote this essay about a, this gravestone of a teenage girl and and I liked it. I was like, oh, wow, this was kind of fun to write. <laughs> and, you know, I got some good feedback from my classmates and I thought, OK, there there's more where that came from. Like I had a lot more stories like that of, mm-hmm. of my memories being in a cemetery. And so I thought, you know, I think I think I could probably write enough here to, to pull it together into a memoir. Oh, that's amazing. And you're touching on something that really fascinates me. I worked at a cemetery for some time. I was the paperwork person for, yeah. for about five or six years. Just incredible histories that are to be found oh. in your small mm-hmm. towns. That's why I think you're touching on things that are very, very important to me and should be important to a yeah. lot of people. Preserving right. their history, looking into their history, but yeah. also... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was uh, just going to say that I think that being in the cemetery environment, how I was gr- growing up, is absolutely why I was a history major. <laughs> I, mean, I just right away, I, I was just so fascinated by all those gravestones and mm. just that idea. Uh, I mean, I was I was young. I mean, my dad became a grave digger when I was two. So, you know, I'd spent wow. a lot of time re- really little, you know, they would just take me to work with them because they also <laughs> mowed cemeteries too. So yeah. I would just be sitting in cemeteries all day long. Um, I, it's like from a very young age, I realized there was a world that had existed before me. And I think for a lot of people, they don't get that understanding until they're older, you yeah. know, We're but it's sheltered. like, right. Yeah. yeah sheltered right. from death, sheltered from. Oh, and sheltered from death. But just this idea that, oh, wow, there were people who walked this earth before me, you know, and I would yeah. like to know more about them and what what was their world like. So that as that's absolutely why history has always just been a passion of mine. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. that's incredible. It just seems like we have to teach our kids to approach these these big ideas, you know, and remind them that they're a part of a bigger lineage. Yeah, um, it's such a forgotten thing that we we don't address. It, right. And when something happened, you know, like the pandemic and, you know, people, I mean, rightly, you know, we're freaking out a little bit. But <laughs> I think if you have that understanding of history, you can say we've been here before or like the, the political landscape right now. Mm-hmm. We've been here before. Like yeah. there's no need to freak out. We've been here before. How right. did we deal with it <laughs> back then? How yeah. can we deal with it now? You know, it's 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 kind of a very calming perspective, I think. No, absolutely. It gives us a sense of humility because yeah. we're never at the forefront of anything. We're almost, and, and I apologize if this is being reductive to a history major, but it seems like <laughs> we've been here before, like you said, yep. but we're not reinventing the wheel, even though we think we are. Right. <laughs> it's just, right. It's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's there's no need. <laughs> you know, let's just yeah. let, you know, figure out what they did in the past. If that didn't work, well, then we can shift gears and figure out how maybe it can work. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. So when did the memoir come out? Uh, Mm -hmm. You said about nine years ago? Yep. So the memoir came out in 2013. It's called We'll Be the Last Ones to Let You Down. So if you get the little joke there with my dad being a grave digger, (laughs) being the last one literally to let you down. Yeah. So that came out 
in the spring of 2013. Oh, amazing. I'll be sure to put in the link in the episode description so folks can check that out too. Great. Thank um, you. But uh, I just a couple more questions here uh, to be mindful of your time. Mm-hmm. How do you manage having a full teaching schedule, I imagine, um, family, I imagine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the speed of the world is a bit insane. How do you manage time or what's your system to write? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's slow. Um, <laughs> so the memoir, the memoir took um, thirteen years from mm-hmm. start to finish, and then now this new book is um, twenty three years, as I had mentioned before. Yeah. But you know, I I am the writer who I do not prioritize writing like that. Mm-hmm. I just can't because I have this job, like you said. I have a family. I have friends, you know, I like to be out with people. Um, I like to just sometimes watch TV <laughs> and relax. <laughs> so so it's like where writing fits in, you know, if I can fit it in among all those other things. So maybe it's early in the morning or maybe it's like, oh, I have a hour or two on a Saturday morning. I can I can write, you know, it's it's going to have to slip in after all of those other things are taken care of. I, I like to I like to run. I like to bike. I like to do yoga. So, I mean, being physically active is really important to me. Like my life would fall apart if I wasn't able to get out for a run. So <laughs> it's like I know I have to do that first. Um, so after all those other things are taken care of, then I'm going to write. And I know writers, you know, there's writers who will do kind of the opposite. Like, wow, I really have to make sure that every day I have time to write. And it's just what what works for you and what is your priority is the question mm. to ask. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, too, too because as you're educating these kids, uh, your, your students, not kids, but, mm-hmm. you know, they're... They seem they're... like kids. <laughs> <laughs> they there there's this need to to help people relax you know everyone's on a grand mission a lot of the time rather than taking a moment to observe look at what's going on in the world around them and and potentially bring all that stuff back into their writing but it seems that these days and you'll have to correct me if i'm wrong um our generations are are very preoccupied with delivering with getting stuff out um do you feel like that's a a core problem with a younger generation of writers yeah uh and i think too there's a lot of pressure on them to you know do the social media thing like Mm -hmm. oh if you're writing you need to be out there on social media and i mean i think that it can be helpful um but also you know i think it's very easy that if you say oh i'm going to be on social media because i have to get my writing out there that suddenly you're on social media doing all sorts of other things that aren't related <laughs> to your writing. It's just a really slippery slope, you know, so to try to contain that. I, yeah, I just feel like there's a lot more pressure on young writers to kind of be out there all the time, be producing. Certainly because of social media, they can see what other writers are doing. And so I think there's yeah. that sense of like, oh, I'm not doing enough or wow, I'm not getting published here and there. Look at all these great successes that people are posting. Yeah, it, you can fall into that trap really easily. Yeah, it's such an illusion, but you're doing a, a great job fighting it by sharing those, you know, hardships with them. Yeah. As, as you said, I mean, that's got to be so liberating for people yeah. to hear. Yeah, actually, now that we were talking about that, I should do that more. <laughs> I should do that more on my social media, probably. <laughs> yeah, I have the uh, the weekly uh, the weekly mistakes. I mean, I, I do yeah, a lot of right. I do a lot of journaling, and I'm like, here's how I messed up this week. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that would be good to maybe post out there. <laughs> Great idea. So, um, what inspires you right now? 
if yeah. I may, what are some things that you're reading, listening, watching that make you feel like, oh, I got, I got a that that's just incredible. I I love writing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what's what's mm-hmm. something that that lights you up recently? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's it's funny because this is the first time in 23 years that I haven't had a project to work on. Um, and so it, it feels a little weird. I feel like, oh, I should be writing my next thing. But mm. but but then I think, no, no, this is good just to take that downtime and and just be really observant and, and letting things kind of come come to me. I mean, one thing that I'm doing right now that I am really passionate about, and, and I'm not sure if it'll lead to any kind of writing or exactly what it will lead to, but that's okay. Um, I have been teaching in... Um, in prisons. So we have, yeah, Yeah. we have a program through our university where, where the incarcerated can earn an associate's degree. So Mm. last year I taught at a men's state facility. And right now I'm teaching at a women's federal facility. And wow, wow, I mean, just talk about, talk about just kind of my mind being blown teaching that population. You know, they're, they're so, passionate and they're so devoted because it's like here's this one thing like they can do and they're really they're they're working to make their lives better oh, um, that's incredible yeah really really inspiring and you know they're just such good students but <laughs> but you know the stories that they the stories they have and um yeah it's just it, it's made me it's made me really see that system i mean talk about a system that really is hidden mm-hmm. you know I oh, mean, yeah. there are there are advocates out there that are are really talking about incarceration. Um, so I would say that that's something I've been reading a lot more about and trying to engage a lot more with lately. Wow, that's just amazing. I got to commend you for that because it is so necessary. Yeah, using sharing that writing as a tool to overcome things, to get better, yeah. to grow as a human being, especially for that population, which is yeah. always severely underserved. And I totally. say this as somebody who was a case manager for for folks who are getting back to work. Oh, sure. This is such a an important aspect of, of rehabilitation of some kind. Yeah. You got to give people the tools for it. So, I mean, kudos to you. That's that's just a wonderful thing that you're doing for your community. Yeah, I just yeah, I look forward to it every week. But, you know, it's it's kind of it's it's interesting also to see the parallels like you were asking me earlier about, you know, like humanizing Camilla, yeah. you know, and, and I think about like how how she she kind of parallels these students that I'm working with because like they've all done something too you know and do mm-hmm. they deserve to be known for just that one thing they did yeah. here's these other things they're doing you know now they're going to college right. so you know i just it, it it's been it's been really fascinating me to me to see like well oh, this is kind of what i was writing about and this is mm-hmm. kind of why i wanted to write about camilla that way cuz she was more than just you know a bank robber <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just phenomenal. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I I just want to make sure that we uh, we wrap up on a good note. Um, what would you say to somebody who's just starting out in their mm-hmm. creative journey? Uh, persistence. <laughs> you know, I just feel like I should have that word tattooed on me or something, because <laughs> I think after, you know, a 13 year journey and a 23 year journey to get books published, I, I you know, I always tell people, it's, I'm not more talented than someone else. I don't have just some like magical writing talent, but I was persistent. Like I believed in my stories. I believed I had stories to tell 
and I knew that they would find a home. I just didn't see the path because you often don't see the path. You have to figure that out. Mm. But I was persistent, you know, after querying 100 agents and editors, you know, who either I didn't hear from or who said no, I knew that somebody out there would take both of these stories. And I was just persistent and I saw it through and I didn't give up. Amazing. Amazing note to yeah. end on. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, so much for Thank your you, time, Jamie. for the work you do in your community and for passing on these insights to myself, because, you know, this is obviously a very selfish thing that I got to do is try to <laughs> soak in as much as humanly possible. Yeah. <laughs> but you're sharing it with others, too. So it's a win win. Absolutely. Um, I want to thank you again for your time. And uh, I hope that we can catch up some other time. You know, if there's anything else great. that yeah, you'd like to talk about down the road or uh, the latest project, feel free to let me know. But uh, I really look forward to uh, seeing you on the Internet and catching up in, down the road. That sounds great. Thank <laughs> you so much for this opportunity today. I love the conversation. Wonderful. You take care, Rachel. Talk okay, soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.